Prepare today for your transition tomorrow. I'm your host, Paul Pantani, and I want to welcome you to the Transition Drill Podcast. I'll be talking with guests about their career journey and seeking their advice to help those planning a similar change. Joining me for this episode is Adrian Robles. He served in the Marine Corps for eight years, achieving the rank of Sergeant, with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as a stint with 1st Marine Division at their division schools as an instructor cadre. Seeing the need for mitigating suicides in the military, Adrian discharged in 2012 and went to school to become a registered nurse. Today, he's working in psychiatric assessment and treatment in the healthcare field and is currently working towards being a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. In our conversation, Adrian provided good advice for those struggling with their mental health, along with advice for those wanting to get into and advancing in the medical field. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's get into episode 17. COVID definitely has to have an impact on you in the psychology world Mm. and and people and and their mental health. What are you seeing from it? I mean, uh, just being a part of the crisis management of, uh, of the psych world, right. Uh, where we're having to possibly give them, uh, emergency medications to control behavior, control anxiety, um, control outbursts. Um, yeah, we see a lot more cases of people that, you know, because kind of backpedal, we all kind of live on the spectrum of something, whether you lean more towards anxiety or you lean more towards uh, maybe OCD, right, um, and, and other spectrums. Um, the only reason why you're not seeking treatment is because maybe it's not affecting you uh, in your daily life. It's when it starts affecting your daily routine, right? Uh, where you can't leave, for example, your house without locking and unlocking your door 30 times, right? And now you're getting to work late, you know, habitually. Then you should probably start looking for treatment options, right? Maybe help getting help elsewhere because now it's affecting your work life, right? And um, yeah, I mean, uh, we've kind of all have, uh, not all, but most have been uh, on this fringe, right? On the fence, and now when you put something like COVID over the society at, at large, yeah, you start seeing these people that ha- used to have these ways of coping now being taken away, uh, better for worse because of the lockdowns, because of other things, the inability to um, see somebody in person, um, access to a lot of different of you know, your services that you used to uh, go to, right? Even just going out and having lunch with a friend, um, since those were taken away, Last year, uh, you saw a lot more people now, uh, you know, seeking treatment and, and typically because of emergency reasons, right? Those kind of manifests, those manifest into something where it, it turns into something like where I, I feel um, like I can't control myself now. I feel like I'm spiraling out of control. I need help. So, yeah, we saw a, a huge increase in that. The CDC also released numbers and, you know, I'm, I'm just... It's off the cuff. I'm just quoting. I'm not really quoting, but I'm just, um, it's out there. CDC uh, put it out there. Uh, I mean, it has increased upwards to like 60-something percent of, of hosp- emergency hospitalizations due to um, anxiety, due to like emergency psychiatric um, interventions, them seeking help in the ED because uh, there was nowhere else to go. And you see these people just sitting there too because... Beds are taken up in psychiatric, inpatient psychiatric facilities. So 
it's just you there there's this backup uh, of where you need you need them to be in a proper setting to be properly um treated and, and assessed so you were saying that all of us live on some spectrum mm-hmm. with the limitations put on by covid is it then you're seeing people who maybe not have previously been as impacted by their spectrum it now compounds it because like you said you're you're isolated and removed from everybody so it it's it almost seems like does it does it uh, give them more of the chance to f- focus on those issues absolutely so um i like the way you said it focused so some people will take um la- the events from last year leading up to now and and uh, in the future as wow, I need to work on this, right? I, I've noticed that I'm, uh, I need a little bit of help in this area. So of course, you know, um, if I'm getting, if I'm lean more towards the anxious side and personally, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nervous eater. Like if I'm stressed out, which I think a lot of us are right. We eat. Right. And, um, I've noticed, wow, you know, I've gained a little, I gained my COVID-19 pounds, you know, and, uh, I think I need to go focus on, uh, you know, go and get out and run, right. That's free. I can go out and run. Uh, so, uh, that's personally what I've done, right. Focus on my physical health because, um, that's, that's where I need help at for others. You know, if they've, um, noticed where, oh my gosh, like I, I feel like I'm spiraling out of control because I've, um, I don't have access to the stuff that I used to have. Um, uh, wh- what do I do? Right. Well, really you just kind of have to um, try to, you know, take a step back and, re- you know, reorient yourself like, well, okay, so I don't have access to this, but how can I modify it? So where I can um, focus on myself, still move forward in a positive direction, but not feel like I'm out of control, right? The great thing about nowadays is that we can still keep in touch with each other, you know, via the internet, via phone call, right? But really just picking up that phone and just talking to somebody that, that, um, could help you with that, right? Um, we we definitely um, have reached a point where you could have used that to better yourself or used it to kind of like uh, focus internally and maybe just continue to spiral out of control. I, I want us to kind of get to that point where, listen, you know, I still have control. I just have to modify. I have to readjust and I have to focus on myself uh, for the better, um, uh, for the long haul. So what can I, what can I do to um to better myself like for me personally it was it was my my physical health is it hard to give somebody back that feeling of control to to get them to a point where they feel like they're not losing more control i feel like um you we we stress ourselves out with trying to look at the big picture when really we need to just focus on one small part and then work from that and and get bigger right um uh i feel yeah, there, there would be times where I'm a little overwhelmed and that uh, I'm sure others feel overwhelmed just because they're looking at like, oh my gosh, I've lost all this control. Uh, but if you focus on something small, like, you know what, how about I get up in the morning, make myself a routine, get up in the morning, I'm going to go running before, like for me, I was still working, right? I'm still working uh, regardless of shutdowns or, or whatever, right? Um, but I, I still need to get into a routine where I would uh, go out and, and um you know, go running in the morning, come back, take a shower, and then be on my way. As long as I did that maybe once or twice a week, maybe I can increase it another like day if I had time 
or um, or focus on something else. So I feel like with everyone, stop looking at the big picture. Look at the um, take one piece out of out of it at a time, and then you start building off from there when you feel comfortable. Okay, I got this. I got control of this. All right, let me let me put my foothold in something a little larger than that. Uh, let me go a little broader. Right. Um, first, it was like the physical aspect, and then the second one was okay. Now let me go control like my eating habits. Like let me focus on that now. You know. So that's just an example. Obviously, the whole point of this podcast is is geared towards law enforcement and military, you being former military, and we're eventually going to get there. Mm. Are you seeing from your experience, is it having a greater impact or an equal impact to veterans as to the civilian community? I feel like it's um, a good question. I feel like with, uh, with my military uh, buddies, um, they kind of already dealt with uh, stressors and they kind of just kept doing their own thing. Right. Uh, just the ones that I kept in contact with, it almost felt like they were just unaffected. If anything, we, you know, uh, for me specifically with my unit, with my Marines, we, we took every stressor and we turned it into a joke. Right. And I'm sure that's the same thing with law enforcement. Right. And we just try to like, uh, we compartmentalize and we kind of move on and we use uh, humor as like a bulletproof vest, right. To kind of keep pushing forward. So a lot of times um, you, you really didn't see it on the surface. I'm sure it affected them in some way, right? Whether they were ill, whether their family members were ill, whether they're just uh, fed up with, um, you know, uh, having um, certain restrictions, right? Um, I, I feel like uh, uh, they probably dealt with it better than those that may have never been in a, in a situation where, um, you know, they, uh, where they were in service of others or, you know, uh, maybe they're never taught uh, coping skills, or maybe they didn't realize they even had coping skills to begin with, and they could they could have just uh, refocused on those um, first before trying to figure out something else. The one thing I've learned in in doing some of these interviews is for those people that are in those stressor positions, first responders, military. Yes, you do need to find a way to cope with it at the moment. Right. Make a joke out of it put it in, you know, put it in the back of your head or whatever, mm -hmm. compartmentalize it so that you can keep moving forward and do the task that you're assigned to. The bigger issue though is you can't keep shoving it to the back and can't keep yeah. making jokes about it for a long period. At some point in time, you do have to get back to zero, so to speak, and start looking for ways to deal with it. Just maybe not necessarily at the moment. So um, again, a really good point. You can compartmentalize, you can push it off, you can shove it off for so long before it starts manifesting, right? Certain people will manifest those into um, where they'll start getting psychosomatic symptoms, right? Where they're like getting headaches, their uh, joint pain, um, where they get physically sick, right? Um, other people, they get stressed out or they, uh, they unleash it at the wrong time, right? Uh, where something small will trigger it and then they just kind of lose that control, right? Um, you do have to go back down to zero and uh, it works in many different ways. I mean, for for many of us, we have to talk about it. We have to sit down with someone. We have to kind of go through it and, and break it apart, right? Someone that's a, a trusted maybe colleague that you've worked with, right? I always push the issue like, Hey, you know, debriefing is, is huge, especially after whatever kind of incident, whether it be, you know, Hey, I'm in the hospital, I dealt with a patient, really problem, 
problematic patient. They were in crisis. Uh, they, uh, they try to attack me, you know, after everything was said and done, they're safe. They're now, um, you know, they're doing well. Um, we may have had to use restraints to be able to deescalate, uh, give them medications to also help them. Right. Uh, but now I'm still affected by this, right? Yeah, we can joke about it, but we still need to debrief. Like what led up to it? Um, how can we also prevent this from happening again? And uh, debriefing is such a huge part to that right up front when it happens, because then you're also able to kind of talk about it. When we say, th- when we think things, it, it may sound great until we say it. Have you ever noticed that? Like I'll say something that I'm thinking, I'm like, man, this is brilliant. And when I say it, I'm like, gosh, that was terrible. Why did I ever think about that? It was terrible. That happens to me every day. So. Right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> same. Uh, so uh, I feel like uh, that's that's as important as you being able to debrief and being able to talk about uh, terrible incidences that have occurred during the work right after it happened. So you get it off your chest, right? You're able to start processing that traumatic event. So there is no long-term uh, repercussions. That's the first, that's the first thing. Um, I feel like also, I, I think... Uh, whether you feel like you're doing well in life or not, you should think about doing therapy. I mean, I've got uh, colleagues that do it uh, periodically, once in a great while, right? Just to do a check-in, right? And I'm like, I commend them for that. I'm like, good job for you. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like going to, I don't know, Massage Envy or uh, going to these places where you're getting a massage, getting a facial or whatever, mani-pedi, what, what have you. I mean, it's, it's not like you need it every day, but um, when you go in, you feel like pampering, you feel better about yourself afterwards, like mind, body, soul. So I, I think it's the same way with therapy. We need to like normalize it and reframe it. So where it's like, no, I'm not going to go to the the shrink doctor. I'm not going to go to like to the, the voodoo witch doctor, you know, like, no, normalize it. It's cool. Just go do a check-in. And if you think that, that you need to work through something, then uh, work with them. Kind of like you would a trainer in, in a gym, you know? Uh, are you going to be with this trainer forever? No, but, um, but for that short term, maybe you just need to reorient, you know, readjust. And so you can focus on what you really need to figure out. And, um, I feel like, uh, if we all kind of did that, uh, I think we'd be in a better place. Well, I think for most people, we try to use the analogy of, oh, I can fix it myself. 20, 30 years ago, if you were an auto mechanic, it was real easy to lift a hood, fix a car. Nowadays, you need computers and everything else to try to fix your car. Most people aren't going to try to do it themselves. I'm making an over-generalized analogy, but we can't fix what's between our ears by ourselves. We need somebody who's an expert to know who to ask the right questions, be able to read us, take us out of our comfort zone, because unless we are open to that and allow them to do that, we're not going to be able to help ourselves. So think about this. Um, I always tell people um, whenever I I train in the hospitals or or out in the field that the most dangerous person in the room is the one that thinks they know it all. And if you think that you're able to fix yourself, I mean, that's kind of going in the same, like that's almost in a sense like self-destructive type behavior. Like if you think you can handle it yourself, um, it's, there's going to be a point where, uh, you're not going to have that objective, uh, uh, viewpoint, right. Uh, where someone's going to tell you, you have an issue. Nope. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm all right. When really there, there are, there are other things that you need to focus on. Right. 
I, I absolutely agree that um, you do need someone to kind of sit there and say, Hey man, let's, let's just talk about some things. Hey, you know what? Um, just uh, objectively observing. This is what I notice. Have you noticed that? Oh shoot. Yeah, I have noticed, you know? So, I mean, it starts the conversation. Yeah. You think you're doing well, but if you really start to hone in on like the little, the little details, like, shoot, I do notice that. Oh man. Yeah. I, I, I do get nervous. Oh man. I do take it out on like my loved ones or yeah, man. Like I, you know, um, I do have self-destructive behavior, my vices, right. You know, I eat or I drink or I do this, I do that. Right. Um, I, it's absolutely, uh, a, a good thing to, to, um, seek for a uh, seek out for help for me personally. I'm always, I'm always uh, living off of constructive feedback. If I feel like, you know what, I've, I've noticed that I've gotten more comments for this specific thing in my life. Maybe I should refocus and try to work through that. You know, um, I'm having an issue and I, I need to go, uh, seek out someone else that can objectively help me out with that specific thing. Right. So absolutely. We can't fix it ourselves. Um, it's just, it's reciprocal. We're more than we will help you out whenever you need help. Right. Well, why can't we ask for help in return? How, let's, let's, uh, reciprocate that. Right. Um, but we need to be okay with it. We need to be, um, open-minded enough to say, yeah, I do need help. Can you help me? Well, human nature, it's always easier to point at somebody else and point out their flaws as opposed to looking in the mirror and acknowledging your flaws. For sure. So let's go backwards a little bit. Growing up, where, where's home for you? So home, uh, has always been in Southern California. Um, I always have a hard time trying to, uh, you know, say like, oh yeah, I would, I would move over somewhere else as much as, uh, California, um, has gotten uh, notoriety, uh, both positive and negative over the years. I don't think I would ever leave Southern California. So, uh, uh, you know, um, I'm in the furthest West end area of San Bernardino County. So, um, and I think that's probably where I'm going to stay. You know, I, uh, I was growing up. I mean, it was a very quiet town. I, I never wanted I always wanted to say like, oh yeah, I want to leave. I can't wait to leave. This is, this is too boring here. Hence the reason you joined the Marine Corps. Right. <laughs> and I went to the Marine Corps. And then after eight years, I was like, I want to go back over there. Like it's so quiet. It's nice. I like it. Uh, so I went, I um, ended up uh, buying a house and now I live in the same place that I grew up. So it's, it's nice. And it's, um, it's also therapeutic too, because uh, where you've been, you know, the areas that you've been to, that you go to and travel to and work in, then you come back and you're like, okay, this is my center. Like, this is where, this is my baseline. Um, this is where I function well um, to recoup, to get away from, you know, um, the stressors of the job, whatever well, like job. So, somebody talks about when they travel, you never sleep as well in a hotel bed as you do in your own bed. Oh, for sure. That if, sense of familiarity you know, and so it would be the same thing if you grew up in a specific place, if you were one of those people that were fortunate, fortunate enough to live in one place your whole life, going back to that's going to bring back that familiarity. Absolutely. And um, I, I grew up in a, in a, a very supportive household. Uh, my parents are still together. You know, um, I'm very fortunate, not like a lot of my friends and, and family members are. So um, uh, to be able to, you know, um, have the ability to come back and still feel that like sense of home and that, um, you know, like that wholesome upbringing. Yeah. That's where, I, that's where I like to be. So I'm, I'm still there. Uh, and, um, I would rather travel and I don't care how long it takes me to get back. I'll drive back. I had to teach in Fresno and I'm like, yeah, it's about three hours away. I'll drive back. It's cool. I'm not going to stay out there. <laughs> 
Did you grow up in a, a military family? Uh, so my father was drafted in the, the army. So, you know, for better or for worse, he was kind of like, he was proud to have served, but he didn't like the, uh, the idea of being forced out of college to do it. Right. Uh, he served honorably, uh, his four years got out, um, started working for uh, a local phone company in, in the area. And, um, uh, I looked at that like, wow, what, how cool, like you, you did it without any reservations, you know, um, you, you didn't dodge the draft, right? You, you did what you had to do as an American, uh, because he, he immigrated from Mexico and, and came over here. And so, uh, I was like, wow, I, I want to be, you know, I want to serve also in some capacity, uh, with the community. And so, um, I looked up to him. So yeah, a military family with him. Um, he was the only one of his, uh, um, siblings that went to the military. And then, um, Honestly, I didn't have anyone really else that uh, that was served in the military in, in any kind of capacity. I have family in law enforcement, you know, looked up to them too. Uh, what really kind of set the tone was when I uh, when I volunteered for uh, the uh, Explorers. I was an Explorer cadet, uh, or not cadet, I'm sorry, an Explorer scout uh, for San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. And that was, you know, what, a, what an honor to be uh, with a, um, a department like that um, sir, uh, serving on a volunteer basis and just, um, you know, being able to have access to all these mentors, right. That are still mentors to me today. Was this while you were in high school? This is when I was in high school. So while you were in high school, were you leaning towards law enforcement or were you already leaning towards the military? I was, uh, I was kind of split because I was really, I really wanted to do law enforcement because, you know, all my mentors were law enforcement. Uh, but then I realized, well, you know, I have to be at least 21, probably get some college. A lot of my mentors were uh, uh, previous uh, military also. Uh, one in particular, his name is uh, um, uh, Martin Landetta. He actually unfortunately passed away in 2012, right when I was getting out of the Marine Corps. Uh, he, it was uh, on his way up to Baker to Vegas. Uh, he was in the car with his wife and uh, one of my other friends, um, a, a deputy. And um, uh, it was really late at night um, on the 40 and, um, uh, a big rig had jackknifed and, uh, he didn't see it until it was too late. So he swerved to, uh, to take the impact on his side. And so it can avoid his wife and, uh, my friend in the back and unfortunately died, uh, uh, from that. So, um, I always kind of carry him around, uh, saying like, wow, you know, um, I, I wish he would have been around like to kind of guide me through that aspect. Right. I think right then and there, I realized um, maybe law enforcement wasn't what I really was chosen to do, but rather uh, more so, um, you know, do uh, more like um, therapy, more in the psych realm. So you were already thinking about the the world of medical mm. even before you went in the Marine Corps. I did, uh, but it was very minimal. So I uh, at first it was Marine Corps. I wanted to go Marine Corps at least four years, go to um, take my test uh, with the San Bernardino, uh, San Bernardino County Sheriff's, which I actually did test in um, 08 because I got in and um, after I graduated, I was, uh, uh, was class of 2004. I uh, enlisted, went to uh, boot camp in August, August 20, no, August 9th of uh, 2004. Now, what was the reasoning for choosing the Marine Corps over the other branches? You know, because a lot of my uh, a lot of my mentors, they had previous law enforcement and uh, and kind of looked well that, hey, uh, you know, look good on them that 
They they served their country. Now they come back. They're oh, of pre- age. They had previous military. Right. Gotcha. They, they were of age this time, right? Because <laughs> remember, you know, I'm an Explorer Scout. Even when I enlisted in the Marine Corps, I was still like 18, 17, 18. So I'm like, well, I'm, I have to be at least 21 before I, I join law enforcement, right? So there's still some time that I have to have to kill in a sense. So uh, I just decided, let me go to the Marine Corps for four years, and then I'll go and work uh, work the county. So um, so I did that, um, and then uh, yeah, and I did test out for San Bernardino. Uh, it was in 2008 when, while you were still active duty. When I was still active duty, I I may have showed up uh, with my uh, service. Charlie's uh, to the testing. <laughs> Some people are kind of looking at me like this guy, this guy, <laughs> asshole. So uh, I tested um, and, um, you know, I, I passed the testing and uh, they wanted to do my backgrounds. But then I thought, well, How I kind of like the Marine Corps. left on your, your initial enlistment at this point in time? So they're four, they're four year enlistments unless there's something special. Like I was an infantryman. So there wasn't anything special about but that I mean, like you, before. What I'm getting at is, were you coming close to the end of your first enlistment at yes, the it time? Was. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so I got in 2004, and this was 2008, so I was almost on my way out of my first enlistment, and so that's why I was like, all right, I'm going to transition properly six months <laughs> six months out. Right, I'm going to start looking at stuff. So I, I tested out, and um, I, I passed that. They wanted to onboard, or they wanted to do my backgrounds, but then I realized shoot, I'm having a great time in the Marine Corps, right? <laughs> I kind of want to stay for another four years, see what, uh, see what it has to offer. Because once I leave, I'm gone. I'm not going to come back, right? Which you can, but it's just um, it's a lot of red tape you have to get through to go back, right? If you have broken time, they call it. You're talking about once you leave the military. Yes. And um, so um, good thing I, I did that because um, when, I, when I did decide, um, okay, I'm going to hold this. I'm going to hold off on this for now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-enlist in the Marine Corps. It was 2008. I just gotten back from uh, my second deployment to Iraq, and uh, w- there was talks of us going to Afghanistan, right? And that was going to be the first time that Marines have been deployed to Afghanistan since the push, since um, uh, shortly after 9/11, right? Um, so uh, I was I was game for it, right? And then um, that's when the economic downturn happened in 2008. So that academy class was uh, was uh, put on hold. So a lot of those uh, academy, uh, a lot of those um, candidates were like, well, I'm not going to stick around like I need to go work. So either they left or um, I don't know if they uh, if any of them ended up continuing on. Um, I didn't really follow them after that, but I was kind of like, wow, I dodged that bullet. It's almost kind of like a blessing in disguise that you ended up staying in. Yes, I was. um, um, I really lucked out because. As much as I struggled when I left, finally after eight years, I think it would have been way worse, um, you know, um, in two thousand eight. Struggled with like mental health wise, like just the separation from it. Um, that, but not as much, but more financial. Oh, I think, uh, yeah, there's there was the the uh, mental health aspect of it, but it was more financial. Like, um, you know, benefits didn't kick in for school until like six months afterwards. Um, no one really showed me the ropes as to like, all what of a sudden to do. you had to pay rent. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, you know, uh, uh, what, what are you talking about? You, you guys are cutting off my funding or whatever, you know, like, oh, now I got to max out my credit cards to pay my rent. Oh man. Now I got to go find a little, uh, a little job here. Um, you know, things like that. It was, um, it was very interesting, uh, a time frame. And I, I, even today, 
if I hear of anyone that's going to be leaving the military, I'm like, talk to me first before you leave, because there are some things that I wish I would have known and wish I would have done. So I'm not saving the government money. (laughs) And so this can help you in your transition. When you decided to do your second enlistment, Mm -hmm. was there any point you were thinking maybe do an entire 20, doing a career out of it? For sure. Oh yeah. I was, uh, there was a time where I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to be here. I'm going to be here until they kick me out. <laughs> I was, uh, a lot of my buddies, one that's still in right now, uh, they, had, uh, they had stood up MARSOC, which is Marine, their Marine Special Operations uh, unit, right? Um, and uh, they were flooding in people from the force reconnaissance, reconnaissance uh, communities, as well as the infantry. And then they were also opening it up to non-combat MOSs is to see if they wanted to test out, see if they were able to get in. And there was this loophole where um, if you were infantry, if um, uh, you had to do some type of uh, indoc, indoctrination, um, you, did, you would avoid the pipeline, they call it, which is like, uh, I think it's almost like a year's worth of training and, and um, vetting pretty much for you to be uh, placed in one of these um, battalions, right? Uh, MSOB battalions. I, uh, I could have done that. And then I was like, that's when I was, uh, conflicted. Like I'm, I can leave, I can go to, um, do, you know, college. I can go do, you know, can go do therapy or be a therapist. I can go do this and that. Um, and, and I ended up, uh, um, leaving to, um, to pursue school. But so, yes, I, there was a, uh, a point in time where I was like, I could totally do this. I can do this for 20 years. This is great. But I mean, Family stuff kind of uh, held me back. Um, the 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 thought of uh, uh, relationships um, not also going th- uh, going through fruition because you're like, well, if I end up sticking to this, I may lose out on all these opportunities. So I, it was really like a crossroads where I, I just had to make a decision. And for me, I don't do anything, um, you know, halfway in, halfway out. It's like it's all or nothing. So. Uh, if I'm that way, I'm going to be indecisive about everything. So it's like either I fully leave or I stay. And so I just ultimately decided to leave. Now, when did, when did you start thinking about, cause you mentioned having an interest in the medical field and in the psychology field yeah. before you ever went into the Marine Corps. Right. When did you make the decision or what was the transition choice or factor that made you go that route from being in the infantry? So um, in the infantry, you, uh, I mean, we don't have medics in the infantry. We have corpsmen that are uh, attached to the infantry units in the Marine Corps, right? So they're Navy corpsmen that are attached to us. They're the ones that provide, they're, they're medics. They're the ones that provide our medical support. Um, but, you know, you have to uh, at least be cross-trained to know, like, if my doc is working on another guy and I've got multiple casualties, I have to know a little bit of something to go and, and work on the other guys, all uh, Marines are required to know this. All Marines are now required to know this. Before they were kind of, it was more volunteer when I was in. Um, they would ask you, hey, you want to go to this combat lifesavers course, right? And, um, uh, you know, but now it's it's standard across the board. Everyone's got to have a tourniquet. Everyone's got to have some knowledge, some medical knowledge to be able to support each other. Um, so, because um, like, uh, you know, we pushed buddy aid, you know, self-aid buddy aid. I'm going to, uh, you know, I have my own little medical kit that I'm going to be able to apply to myself if I'm injured, but I also need to be able to make to my buddy if he's also injured and be able to 
uh, uh, focus on him and uh, stabilize him before they get medevaced out. Uh, so there was uh, definitely an interest, and I really liked that that science part to it. I was like, man, this is great. And so I would, I was thinking about that um, at, all throughout my my uh, two enlistments. Uh, my first uh, enlistment was um, doing nothing but straight shots to Iraq and Afghanistan. No. I was never on a ship. Um, I was based out of 29 Palms. So at, during that time, it was all Pendleton units uh, were, were focused on, you know, getting out on the ship, heading out on, um, you know, their, um, you know, their floats, they call it. For us in 29 Palms, the land that God forgot, uh, they would, uh, they would take us, you know, straight over. Uh, if we're going to Iraq, we're going, we're going to hit up March Air Force Base and go straight over there, you know. Uh, no, no hanging out at no ports. We're going straight over there. And so, um, yeah, that, that we did that. And, um, uh, it was during that time where I really just had a greater respect for the medical, uh, knowledge, medical community. Just as a little side note though, growing up in Southern California, 29 Palms is not seeing the world. No, it's not, not <laughs> at all. Nah. And so it's uh, kind of weird too, because you're, you're leaving one desert to go to another desert just to come back to the desert. But it's weird because, uh, as much as I absolutely hated that ride, uh, they get you on this rickety bus, government issued bus from uh, a school of infantry in Camp Pendleton, right? So you do your three months of boot camp, then you go to do your two months of infantry training in Pendleton, and then they they tell you, okay, you're going to go to these units, right? And me, I'm like, please let me stay in Pendleton because people are happy here. Uh, nope, you're going to 29 Palms. So that lonely drive up the 62 freeway to get up to Yucca Valley, right? You're just like, my goodness, this is so depressing out here. Why would you want to leave the beach? God. I mean, Camp Pendleton can't be fun. Oh, my gosh terrible place right <laughs> you know and it's funny because full circle after i uh, uh served my four years up in 29 palms i had gotten back from afghanistan uh i i took orders to go down to pendleton to be uh, an instructor um down in division schools it's the first marine division schools so um i went down there and uh i just noticed right off the bat when i was doing my in processing uh people were just nicer, happy, happy. <laughs> They're just like, Hey, how are you doing? Sergeant Robles. I'm like, Hey, hi. Wow. You guys are friendly. You guys got smiles. Cool. Because over there, I mean, people just, they just hated life. So, and it was just an understanding. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you lip. You're going to give it back to me, whatever. I mean, it wasn't lip. It was like sternness, but uh, you could tell people just didn't like it up there. Well, and for nobody who's been to even just around 29 Palms, yeah. let alone stationed there for any length of time. Mm -hmm. It is kind of the other side of the moon. Oh, man. So the story is about 29 Palms, which I'm a lo I am love history. But um, I guess back in like World War II, pre-World War II era, Patton's, uh, Patton, General Patton opened up that base. It was an original, uh, originally it was an army base and it was specific for tank warfare, right? To go out there, maneuver the tanks. But apparently the, the rumor goes, uh, the army was like, no, this is not sustainable out here. This is a terrible place to live. Um, we're, you know, we're giving it to the Marine Corps, right? When so you have to, when you have to do airdrops for your people. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of remote pretty much. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's just super, even now it's really desolate. I mean, just barely within the last 10 years, have they been actually making an effort to, uh, make it a nicer place, but, uh, yeah, it's still pretty desolate out there and you got amboy that's right <laughs> next to it have you ever driven in uh, through wow 
Yeah, yeah. Have you ever Everybody's watched? Everybody's only driven through Amboy. Nobody ever actually stops. You don't want to stop. Never stop. And never go to the shoe tree because it's just scary. Um, so uh, with Amboy, if you've ever seen The Hills Have Eyes, that's pretty much what it is. Like you see the diner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a creepy diner out there. I'm sure a lot of your listeners and they're going to want to go through there, but we would take Amboy to go through to Vegas because that was like the, the back way, the back way. Yeah. Um, until you lost service <laughs> uh, for like 30 minutes, but yeah, no, no creepy or get abducted by an alien out there. But yeah. So eight years in, yeah, you're getting ready. You're, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. But you're, you want to go towards the medical field. Right. What steps did you start making for that planning process? So I didn't make any steps, really. I mean, um, on my way out, it was really legitimately the last month of my contract. I was like, because I was, I was having conversations with the sergeant major of headquarters battalion, 1st Marine Division, which was a personal friend of my Sergeant Major from 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, my unit that I had served in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And he sat me down. He's like, all right, Robles, what's the plan? What do you want to do? Do you want to go do drill, uh, being a drill instructor down in Pendleton? You got to do a B-billet, which is like a secondary job that you kind of step out of your comfort zone um, to do, whether it be Marine security guard at embassies across the world, whether that be a drill instructor making Marines down in um, Pendleton or, you know, where your buddy went to, um, uh, you know, the other place. Um, <laughs> there's always this rivalry, right? We're called the Hollywood Marines, and, well, those are Paris Island Marines. So uh, The Mississippi is the dividing line, right? Yeah, that's the dividing line, right? So, um, you know, we had this whole conversation, and um, I was like, yeah, I'll probably be doing a drill instructor B-billet, right? And then uh, it didn't really occur to me until, um, you know, my partner was like, what do you want to do? Like, what's going to happen? did you want to go to school? Like, will you have the opportunity to go to school? And I sat down. I'm like, you know what? I've kind of gotten to this point where I know, I know the job. I kind of know everything about the job. I don't think there's going to be anything that would know any, like any new information. And I think I would get bored and I, I kind of wanted to challenge myself by going to school. Right. So the idea of school was very appealing, not because I wanted to leave the Marine Corps, I love the Marine Corps. I still love the Marine Corps. And, um, you know, even today, I'm, I still make those, like, that little side thought, like, what would have happened if I would have stayed, right? But ultimately, like, that whole mentality of just jumping in, you know, both feet, right? I was like, you know what? I, um, I'm just going to do it. Um, really to appeal to, like, my personal life and also um, specific to the personal life, appeal to, like, my, my family. I didn't want to, like, put them through heartache because going through these deployments really uh, took a toll on my family. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, cause being in the Marine Corps, being in the infantry uh, during the time when it was the most dangerous out in Iraq and in Afghanistan, uh, it really like you, you're, that's the headline every single day. I mean, uh, if you remember back in from 2005 until 2008, you know, it was like real, there was every, every headline was like, okay, this is how many people we lost today, you know? So, right. and my family hearing that, you know, really, uh, I just didn't want to put them through stress. And also it's like, uh, I wanted to make them proud again, right? I went to the Marine Corps, did what I had to do there, served two enlistments. I think that's it, you know? Uh, maybe it's time for another uh, area of my life. 
to flourish. Right. So I, I, I transitioned and I started telling my parents like, yeah, I think I'm going to go to school. My mom didn't believe it. She was like, yeah, okay. This is what you said four years ago. Right. When you said you were going to be a police officer. And, uh, I was like, but no, but this time I'm, I'm serious this time. So it wasn't until first day of school when I, uh, like I, I told my mom, mom, like I'm, you know, I did my first day of school. She's like, Oh my gosh, I'm so happy for you. You were actually telling the truth this time. So when you left and started school, yes. were you already focused on, am I saying it correctly? The psychiatric field? Um, I wanted to do something in psych and um, I actually did it. So I rushed the last two weeks of my enlistment to try to do my outboarding stuff, which is actually not what you want to do at all. You definitely, you want to like a year out. Um, they tell you this in the Marine Corps. Well, they're starting to tell you this. They say, Hey, listen, a year out from when you know that you're going to leave, start making those plans because for sure the drop dead point is six months before you EAS your end of active service. You want to start enrolling yourself in these, um, what they call, uh, I don't know what the, the, I forget the acronyms, but pretty much it's just like you have to go to these mandatory classes where you're, you're stuck there for, I think it's like a week now, uh, from, you know, like eight in the morning until 4 PM where people are coming in and they're telling you, Hey, when you transition out, this is what you want to think about school. This is what you want to think about finances. This is what you want to think about, right? Um, oh, this is represented from the VA. This is who, like, oh, if you have issues like uh, medical issues, you want to clear these first before you leave. And, and so you can have your stuff set up with the VA. So you have your medical benefits and stuff. Um, uh, so always, much information. Does it always go that smoothly? No, never, ever. For me, even I would like to say I, I can retain things pretty well and I'm a good note taker. But even for me, it was challenging. And they're dumping all this information to you. And you're just so overwhelmed. And then you lose contact with these people because when you when they give you the 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 contact info, they're never reachable. So it's like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to do this on my own. So I think I remember that I have to do this, then this, then that. Anyways, I had some really good Marines uh that that helped me through that process. They're like, Hey man, you got a lot going on, uh, you know, in your uh your deployments. You got, you know, I'm sure you got your your um uh, your head rattled a few times. So you might want to go check out some, uh, um, you know, uh, some of these clinics first before you leave, get that stuff documented. So when you transition over to the VA, um, they'll give you free medical for a certain amount of time uh, because you're a combat vet. So anyways, um, transitioning out, I rushed it the last two weeks. But what I was able to do um, with help of my partner, I was able to figure out, okay, um, as soon as the day that I, uh, pick up my discharge papers that next day, I'm going to start school because I already knew if I would have waited, if I would have had time to like kind of kick back, I think I would have either lost, uh, the, the, the will to go to school or I would have gotten stressed out. Like, oh man, like being in this regimented, you know, uh, like community for the last eight years and now not having to get up at six in the morning. Well, actually not six in the morning. It would be like four in the morning, but be at work by six really in the morning. morning. Right. Yeah. Zero dark, stupid in the morning. So, I mean, uh, so getting up at four in the morning, being at work at six, um, you know, uh, I think I would have, I would have gone a little crazy, right? Cause you know, you're so uh, regimented with, uh, with your schedule. So um, I, I did it that way. Uh, nice little transition. Um, I'll tell you what, my, my class the next day didn't start until 1 PM 
And it was the first time in the last eight years that I was able to actually get up without, uh, you know, an alarm clock without whatever. I actually woke up at, I think it was like 11 o'clock in the afternoon, like in the afternoon when really I got, I got up at four in the morning without an alarm. And because you have that like anxiety of like, Oh man, I'm gonna miss work. I, I cannot be late to work. You know, I woke up at 11. like, Oh my gosh, what time is it? What day is it? You know, I'm like so disoriented. I'm like, Oh, okay. I think we're good. You know, let me go to school. So yeah, that started um, this whole thing. So I wanted to do psych, didn't know what I wanted to do, had no desire of being a nurse. That was far from my mind. Uh, How much research did you do into what school you were going to go to? Geez. Um, I just knew that, hey, I need to get my prereqs out of the way. So let's just start there. I just got to get this stuff out of the way before I can actually get into what I need to get for my bachelor's, right? And I, and I ended up going to Mount Sac, Mount San Antonio College in Walnut, California. Uh, because number one, that's a just an amazing community college. I mean, it's just a, an awesome place. Um, my mom went there. And she always loved it there. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I'll I'm go there. Graduate. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go there, right? Well, I didn't, I'd never been there. So I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go. My mom went there. Must be good. So I went there and I never knew how awesome that place was because I'll tell you what, and I don't know if you knew this, but they have a pro section class. A pro section class, they have cadavers there where you can actually take a course where you go and you are dissect, bisecting, dissecting uh, real cadavers, human cadavers, not just your, you know, a, a rabbit. Frog or something. A frog, yeah. You're actually, these are, these are people. And um, Dr. Rexack, she is, she's the one that uh, spearheaded that, that program there. She's also one of the main uh, heavy hitters in the, the science unit. Like if you have to do anatomy, if you have to do physio, which are your prereqs for any kind of science based um um uh degree you have to go to her one of her courses right and uh, she started this initiative where they would get cadavers from uci right um and then uh she would be uh you know they're there on campus in a secure location where you take these pro section classes so i was never in a pro section class although i wanted to but being in her anatomy classes she would have these uh, practicums where she would have you run through, not literally run, but, you know, do push-ups. And no, um, <laughs> she would have you go through and you would have to uh, uh, be able to, uh, you know, say, hey, this right here, this feature, this is, you know, uh, the Achilles tendon. This is, oh, this is the clavicle. Oh, this is, you know, whatever, right? Um, to be able to pass the courses. Uh, no other, I mean, that's a community college. Right. I mean, you'd be lucky if you went to UCLA and were able to see half a cadaver for your medical, if you were like in a medical, um, or I'm sorry, pre-med course or medical course for like your, to be an MD, right? Um, Mount Sac has that. So Was your long-term goal to go to medical school? I think, no, it was never to go to medical school. I wanted to be a therapist. So to do that, I was like, all right, I'll do these sciences. I think this is great. But it wasn't until I started working in an inpatient psychiatric facility when I started saying, hey, I want to be a nurse specifically, a psychiatric nurse. Because all this time I was like, okay, I'm going to maybe do my PsyD, like how Shiloh did, right? Uh, your first your first guest. Um, so Shiloh, um, she, she has her PsyD and I was planning on doing that right? Um, to be a therapist, uh, clinical therapist and then, um, uh, or clinical psychologist. I mean, so I, uh, but it wasn't until, um, I was actually working in the psychiatric field when I actually 
wanted to be a psychiatric nurse. Now, what does a psychiatric nurse allow you to do that maybe a psychologist or doesn't get to do? So, okay. So we all have our piece of the pie, right? Um, and, and it's uh, for a good reason. So psychologists, they're doing the assessments. They're probably creating also the type of assessments you would want to implement to be able to figure out, okay, well, what are they really dealing with and what do we need to focus on to be able to pinpoint and target that behavior, that disorder. And so we can, uh, you know, get them back to where they need to be, where they can be functional. Right. Um, psychologists do a lot of things, right. Um, they work for corporations, they work for, um, you know, hospitals, they work for corrections. They, uh, they work for the courts, right. To be able to assess, um, not necessarily always treat. So for psychiatric nurses specifically, we're with the patient the whole day, all the time. We're constantly documenting. We're constantly focusing on and adjusting like, uh, they're acting a little bit more erratic. I think it might be because um, they're getting too much of this medication. How about we give them this medication? Oh yeah, they're way better on this medication, right? Uh, A lot of times when patients are coming into uh, an inpatient psychiatric um, setting, they've had some type of crisis where they might have spiraled out of control because either a medication regimen isn't working for them or they've gotten off of it and they've gotten to the point where they're uncontrollable and they have to be in a controlled uh, setting where they're, they have eyes on them, right? So then we'll get them back on a schedule of medications that work for them and so they can be discharged and so they can get back to living their, their life the, the way they need to. Now, does this... Re- is it a undergrad required to be this at this level or can somebody do it with a two-year degree? Uh, someone can uh, definitely do it with a two-year degree. Uh, there are um, associate uh, level nurses, registered nurses. Um, now that everyone's kind of moving towards magnet status, which is more of a prestigious like, hey, you know, we're, we have premier healthcare here at this hospital, right? Um, you're, you're starting to see a lot more, uh, less jobs for the associate level nurse. There's still many out there, but, um, they're starting to go more towards, Hey, let's get them into like a baccalaureate type of setting where, uh, um, they, they have their bachelors, they're registered nurses. And so we can, you know, um, so it looks better on the, 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 the hospital. Right. But there is no, there's definitely a lot more, uh, there's definitely a lot of jobs out there for associate level nurses. Uh, Mount SAC has, uh, an amazing nursing uh, um, school there. Their program there is like, is really good. I mean, their nurses that they, they put out in Mount Sac is just, they're phenomenal. And um, uh, I would have gone there if I would have had the, the grades, but I didn't. And at that time, it's like either um, or have a 4.0 GPA or, you know, um, uh, you just wait the two years, I think it was at the time, uh, for the time to be able to get in there, right? Because I think after a certain while, you gain like a certain um, level uh, of seniority to be able to um, at least try to get in there. And so there's get a, a waiting list to get into that program. For sure. Now I think it's a point-based system, like depending on like your GPA, depending on many other factors, right? Uh, military or whatever, and uh, or first-generation college student. Um, so I ended up taking uh, more of an easier route just because of my GI Bill benefits. Um, I ended up going to, to West Coast, which has actually worked out really good for me. West Coast University, they have five campuses in the United States, three in uh, Southern California, one in Dallas, and one in Florida, Miami. And um, I 
you know, I've had great success with them. And it's, I, I had my bachelor's right, uh, right when I was done, uh, when I was graduated and I was bored, uh, when I became uh, an actual registered nurse, I got, I already had my bachelor's. And you immediately went into the psychiatric realm or did they make you do other stuff first? No, I, I went straight into the psychiatric realm. So, um, so before that, uh, let's backpedal. So while I was going through my schooling, I mean, I, this is, see, this is why this podcast is so important. If I would have known straight out of the gate that I wanted to be a nurse, I would have been a nurse like, you know, gosh, like three years earlier, right? Like, you know, way earlier than, than where, what it took me. I guess it's uh, a bless another blessing in disguise because I was able to figure out myself and figure out what I really had a passion for um, rather than just going straight into it. And then maybe feeling a little resentment, like, well, is this really for me? Like I actually got to figure it out. It took me like six years to graduate my bachelor's from going through all my schooling, which shouldn't take you six years, but because I was jumping back and forth, like, oh, I want to do psych. Oh no, not psych anymore. I want to do nursing. Now I have to take these courses um, instead. Um, it, it, there was a lot of time that I, I don't want to say I wasted because I think any schooling is, is great schooling because it's still teaching you something, right? That you didn't know already before. But um, I wish I would have known what I know now, right? Like um, I would have just gone straight for it. But um, during that time, I was working as a mental health worker uh, for an inpatient psychiatric facility, which ended up being the reason why I wanted to be a nurse in the first place. Because before I was like, I don't want to be a a male nurse. Like I remember, you know, uh, meet the parents. I remember when Robert De Niro, <laughs> Bobby De Niro was making fun of, uh, uh, Ben Stiller's character of being a male nurse. I want to be that. Hey, yo, it's so gosh, it's like, what a terrible representation of male nurses. Right. And, uh, now, uh, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, like, but, um, you know, we're just a much of the community, even though we're like maybe 25% of the community versus like uh, female um, nurses. Uh, but uh, like, we're still like, it's still great to have uh, men and women a part of that. It's not just a, a female dominated uh, profession, you know, it's, it's for both, but um, we do a lot. Nurses do a lot. Anyway. So um, do, do, excuse me for interrupting. Go right do most, most hospitals or the majority of hospitals all employ psychiatric nurses or only certain hospitals? Certain. So it depends on what, you know, how large the, the, um, the hospital is, what kind of services they do offer. Like if you're in county hospitals, for sure, they have a psychiatric facility there um, uh, within one of the units. Uh, I was in a freestanding one. It was a private hospital. So we took all the patients from the county hospitals, like typically the patients that they didn't want. Uh, because we're private, you know, we have to fill the beds, right? Uh, you know, we had contracts from big companies like Kaiser, um, other uh, hospitals in different counties also. We get people from like, you know, um, gosh, um, what is it? Just up north in some of the beach areas. Like we get them all over San Diego County. We get them from Kern County um, coming to San Bernardino County. So it was very interesting. And we're not even that large of a of a hospital, but we would take them. So um, so with, with the, uh, with the nursing aspect, um, you know, I decided, okay, well, I want to be a nurse, but then now, uh, now that I'm in this inpatient community setting for the community, I want to see how it is if I'm out in the field. So then I took a job, uh, in South central LA, um, commuting all that way too. 
to be a part of a, um, a crisis counseling uh, company. And uh, we were specifically, we were vendors of the, uh, the, uh, the regional center for South Central. And so the South Central Regional Center that covers South LA, covers all the way from South LA to Downey and everywhere in between, uh, we would be going out there um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had a crisis line that um, consumers of the regional center would call or their families for us to go out there and assist with crisis. So, um, Are you deploying with law enforcement or as, as your own team? Sometimes. We would be in our own team most often, but sometimes law enforcement would call us and be like, hey, I think this person might be a consumer of the regional center. Could you come and assist? Okay, cool. Sometimes we would have to call them because we're like, hey, there's, we're in the middle of Compton and uh, there's a lot going on here, so we might need your assistance. Um, uh, so working with law enforcement was actually pretty great. At first, they're kind of like, who are you guys? And then, well, you know, soon after, they're like, oh, thank you. Come on, come help us out with this because we have all these other calls we have to go. Uh, Once too. they learned what you could, what services you could provide. Exactly. Right. And um, we weren't a part of uh, the department of uh, our mental health for LA County, but we had a relationship with them. Like I can call them. I knew their supervisor. I could say, Hey, can I get like an emergency referral for this client? Because uh, they are, they're saying that they want to hurt themselves although they're not in imminent danger right now because they're with the family and we've already done a safety assessment. We already like pretty much, you know, took all their ability to be able to hurt themselves like knives and all that secured that. Uh, but we do need, you know, some type of emergency referral within the next few days with a psychiatrist. Um, so that was actually a, a huge, this, what a pleasure to be out there and work in those inner, inner city communities to be able to see. First off, me coming from where I came from, where, you know, I, I have both my parents, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't live, I, uh, we were, you know, um, we were well off, you know, uh, didn't, we weren't, um, you know, live in poverty. Uh, I was very fortunate as a child, but to be able to go out there and, and get that point of view, like, wow, like that is crazy. I, they don't live that far away from me, you know, and how different it changes and, and, and how that community and that culture within the community sees other services that come in and try to help the community, how much distrust there is because of the history, right. You know, and to be able to kind of, you know, get past that and meet them at their level at like, as a human and say, listen, no, I'm, I'm here to help you out. Like and care less about what's going on. Like, can we just focus on each other right now? And your, your job is not specifically working with veterans. I'm assuming that you yeah. come across veterans, but Absolutely. you're not specific. Now, could somebody in your field work for a facility only working with veterans if they wanted to? They can. Um, I've come across veterans in the community-based inpatient psychiatric facilities, and I wear my Marine Corps badge reel just as kind of like a, oh, hey, were you in the... So it's like a talking point, right, to break the ice. And um, I have worked with veterans... Um, but if someone wanted to work specifically with veterans, and remember, this journey is all for me to get my experience, be well-rounded so I can help my veteran community, right? Um, if they wanted to work specifically with the veterans, they would want to work with the VA directly because the VA has uh, psychiatric um, units, psychiatric facilities, psychiatric services specific for veterans. Now, you're working towards your physician's assistance? So, assistant? So not physic. So PAs are different from nurse practitioners. PAs, okay. um, typically you're a, a master's level, uh, 
with uh, or no, you, you, I think you have to have a baccalaureate degree um, to be able to go to a uh, to be a physician's assistant. Um, but for me, I'm going to be a nurse practitioner. So I'm going through my schooling right now to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner. But it, it's additional schooling. It's additional schooling. Uh, right now, it's uh, mine's a, a master's uh, program. Uh, but eventually, I'm going to go and get my DNP. Um, and so I can uh, possibly be able to eventually uh, diagnose and prescribe uh, within a certain um, um, within certain guidelines, because I wouldn't be able to, not yet, we, we won't be able to um, function autonomously just yet as nurse practitioners and providers. Uh, we still, I think, have to network with a physician, uh, but I think they're working to try to um, kind of cut the cord uh, because we're trying to also help alleviate um, the need for providers out there. Like there's not enough doctors to help uh, what we have going on right now with all, all everything that we're dealing with in society. So bringing in nurse practitioners helps alleviate that because now you're bringing more uh, providers uh, into the field of medicine and um, they're not having to go to school as long as uh, medical doctors, medical doctors, it's almost like 10 years worth of, of schooling that they would have to go through before they actually are able to um, practice. Right. Right. Uh, and practice autonomously, like by themselves. Right. Um, for nurse practitioners. I mean, it's, um, you know, if you took the direct route, I guess it wouldn't take you 10 years. A lot of nurse practitioners right now have had years of experience, like 20, 30 years, and then they go into nurse practitioners. Um, right now I'm, I'm still, I'll probably within my 10 years of being a nurse, be a nurse practitioner. Uh, so, which is relatively quick, but for me, I, I specifically want to target that, that, um, uh, veteran community, you know, population. So getting to the graduate level, mm. master's level nurse practitioner position, will that force you to go back into a hospital? Uh, yes, it will. And then obviously going all the way on and getting to a doctorate level would guarantee that you're probably going to stay in a hospital. I mean, um, right now there's a lot of telehealth going on, right? Where you don't necessarily have to be at the bedside. I mean, for sure, I'm going to have to work the trenches and be um, at the bedside. I'm good with that. But I'm also able to do a lot more than just be at the bedside. I can be able to go uh, possibly out in the community where right now I'm trying to, um, I consult with a, um, a company still out in uh, the LA area for consumers of the regional center. And what I'm trying to do is maybe also be able to help uh, by working with uh, the, you know, Department of Mental Health out in LA. Um, eventually, uh, again, I think, um, full circle, I, I just want to be able to also help my veteran community. Um, I, I, right now I'm still like in transition trying to figure out, like, um, I will always have a place in my, uh, my heart and be able to, uh, want to help the, the veteran community. Um, but also I, I kind of also want to do a little bit of everything, you know, um, if someone were to come to me that needs help that, um, that isn't a veteran, like I, I want to help them too. You know, I'm trying not to bite off too much that I can't chew. Right. But again, like just trying to figure out uh, my way right now. Like I'm not, I don't fully know exactly hundred percent where I'm going to be at in, in five years. You know, I know that I'm going to be in the psychiatric field. I know in some capacity, I'm going to help veterans. Um, but I'm also looking all, uh, at, um, at helping those with developmental and intellectual disabilities too. Because you'd be surprised, and I know this is kind of off topic 
from like the veteran driven um, theme right here. But uh, when I was working in South Central as a crisis counselor, it was so difficult that this this consumer here, this patient, this person is having a hard time because they need something to help them with their impulses, right? Uh, not only are they on the spectrum of, uh, of autism, let's say, for example, but they also are suffering from um, a comorbidity of, of um, schizophrenia, right? Uh, this could be, you know, that they're uh, having hallucinations of some sort, right? That's really messing with them. They can't sleep. They can't do anything, right? But yet they have, uh, they're on the severe side of the spectrum too, so uh, it's, there's a reluctance in uh, the community, the psychiatric community, for uh, psychiatrists to work with that population because they're just so difficult to work with. You know, like, how do I know that this medication is actually working with them and this isn't just the, the, the part of their spectrum disorder? Like, I don't know. So a lot of them just kind of uh, not maybe um, deal with, like, the liability of that. They, they just are reluctant to work with that population. But for me, I'm like, well, they need help. Like, how are we going to help that community if no one's willing to actually do it? And I know there's some psychiatrists that will help, but not enough. And uh, for some of my emergency referrals, when I knew that they were on the spectrum, they had a diagnosis, I would have to reluctantly omit that they had spectrum, they're on the spectrum and lead with, oh, by the way, um, you know, uh, they're suicidal, actively suicidal right now. They do have a plan. They do have the means. Um, this is emergent that we need. This is imminent. We need a, a referral. Kind of checking the the priority box. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, is that ethical? Yeah. I mean, for the greater good, uh, this is, I mean, they absolutely need the help. So I'm, I'm most definitely not going to tell them and lead with, oh, by the way, they're on the spectrum too, you know, because uh, you would hear them in the uh, on the other line. Uh, I've, uh, I've messed up that way where I've led with that and they're like, Oh, and I'm like, dang, I should have not led with that because now they're, they've got that in their head. Right. You mentioned something and, and it made me think about it. I know right now it's real popular, popular. It's becoming more well-known the whole, for no better term, mobile therapy, where you can basically speak to a therapist over your, your, you know, FaceTime over your phone. What's your opinions on that? Is, are those good services so telehealth that's um i think they're good services i mean uh there's a lot out there i don't necessarily know all of them but the ones that i know um i think that they're i think they're great because you have at your fingertips someone that you can talk to right then and there um theoretically right um unless you're going uh to talk to one specific therapist but uh, I think they're great because uh, it, it puts you in touch, especially if you're in a rural community, right? Hey, I'm out in like middle of nowhere. Yeah. I'm out in the boonies, man. Like I'm, I can't drive down there. Oh, and I have other health issues. Oh, my car broke down. Like, how am I going to get to my therapy appointments? Right. So telehealth does help that population. Right. I think it's great. Um, now, I don't know all of them. I don't know uh, if there's any bad ones, but I think the idea of telehealth is amazing because it just puts you in touch with someone with a provider like right away. Going back to when we first started our conversation. So if you if you were giving advice to somebody who maybe is kind of feeling like they're on the fence mm-hmm. right now, maybe they're feeling some of the symptoms or, or signs, seeing some of the signs and like, okay, maybe I, I should maybe go talk to someone. Is that 
for no better term, maybe a safe entry into the the world of getting some psychological help? Or would you recommend still going to in-person, given that the person has the opportunity for both? Well, so um, I think to get your feet wet, yeah, absolutely. I think that'd be a great uh, starter. Um, I feel like, uh, and it does, it's like if you're going to find a trainer to help you train to, um, you know, better your health, right? I want to get stronger. I want to lose weight. I want to, you know, I want to be a part of a physique contest, whatever. Um, you have to click with your trainer, right? Cause there's some trainers that you might not click with. You're like, Oh man, you're, you're too cocky, too arrogant. No. Um, you make me feel weird. Like, no, um, it's the same thing with your clinicians, right? If you go in and you talk to a clinician and you don't click with, maybe you took the time to drive to them and you're just like, no, see, I knew this was a bad idea. At least with telehealth, you can like, you can check in with them. You don't have to waste gas. You don't have to waste uh, money necessarily to go and see them or logistic, the, the logistics it takes to be able to go and see somebody like you can just check in with them online and say, you know what? no. Uh, it, it doesn't work, right? Uh, I think th for that, it, it does. Uh, it's absolutely great to be able to just um, use telehealth, right? Um, ultimately, I think it'd be a great idea to be in person because there is um, more to um, therapy than just turning on a screen. I think we've all be, been desensitized um, when we see things uh, through a screen. Right. I mean, that that's with everything, whether that be talking to someone about your issues, whether that be uh, watching a, a violent movie or whatever. Right. Uh, we get desensitized. And I feel like it's not uh, as impactful if, as if you were in person, because there's something that you'll never be able to take away as uh, when you're in a room with somebody and you're talking to somebody face to face in person, when you're able to pick up on their cues, their 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 non um, um nonverbal cues, right? That's exactly what I was thinking. Right. So I, I think at first, yeah, for sure. Once you click with someone, go make the effort, go meet with them, go, go sit down. Maybe that can be a ritual where you leave, you go there, you sit down with them, you're out of your comfort zone, right? Which is another aspect of mental health that you want to kind of get out of too. be in a different environment uh, where it will challenge you to work on your issues rather than you know, oh, I'm going to close up in my space. I'm going to shut this down. I don't want anything to do with it, right? I think at first it would be okay, but like eventually you want to get to the point where you want to be in person. Do you find or do you know if most doctors offer both services? So for instance, you start out in person and maybe transition to seeing them over a computer screen? Yeah, so I think they're pushing that more often now. Uh, not all places do that, but uh, most places, like I know that dealing with like my mother's healthcare stuff right now. Um, a lot of them are now using that platform, um, where they're, uh, they're having, they're on a secure, um, you know, channel through their application. Right. And, um, they're, they're talking to you, uh, from their office and they're, you know, now on my mother's phone, you know, in her house. So, um, not all places, um, offer that, but they're, they're trying to lean more towards it. Because now they're able to see more patients in a day and not have to worry about, well, are they going to show up? Well, if they don't show up, then I'll just take on this next patient right here. So they're actually able to see more patients throughout the day uh, versus like if they're coming in in person. But ultimately, if, if the person's not truly vested in it, mm -hmm. if they're not really looking to get help, going the 
telehealth route mm-hmm. is only probably going to, and maybe I'm overgeneralizing, if you're not vested in it, it's easy to not be in it to the point where the doctor can truly help you. Right. It, it, it really puts the onus more on you mm-hmm. to be open and truly honest with what you're feeling because the doctor doesn't have the ability to read a lot of the nonverbal cues. Well, so I think the initial like assessment would be like, oh no, you need to see me in person, right? Um, I think that's a great tool to be able to quickly go and t- connect to the person. And then, uh, but it's up to the provider or it's up to whoever is, uh, um, you know, conducting that telehealth session to say, hey, I think that it's a great idea for you to come and see me in person, right? Um, if they're not doing that, if they're not pushing the issue, if they're not making it to where it's like important that you see each other in person, then yeah, uh, that person, uh, that um, patient might say, well, okay, I'm not really vested in this. I'm just going to disconnect. Um, I don't really need this. It's fine. Um, it's really up to that provider to be saying, hey, like, no, I really think that you should come in and see me. Because, you know, sometimes you might deal with someone that isn't severe. You know, they just need a quick check-in. Now you've you've essentially checked that box. You've connected with them. You're offering uh, really good heartfelt uh, interventions, right, uh, moving forward. Uh, but then if you connect with someone that's more on the severe side, wow, okay, well, you know what? I think you really should be coming in to see me in person. So um, I think as a tool, it's, it's a great way to quickly connect with the patient. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's just as much on the provider than it is on the patient too, to, to um, uh, kind of uh, really talk them into saying, hey, I, I think you really should come in and see me. So in wrapping up, anything, last bit of advice that you would give to veterans or you know, anybody who's kind of maybe on the fence or not really sure if they need help, what you would suggest? Yeah, I, um, speaking from experience, um, from working with my, uh, you know, my community, working just on myself, for sure have a plan. I mean, I tell all my friends or all like, uh, I even tell people that I don't even know, like, just let me know, talk to me, ask me questions. I want to be able to help you and I guide you. Okay. Um, so I, I open that up to anyone that really wants to reach out to you to get in touch with me. Like I'll help with whatever, because transitioning out of the Marine Corps was very stressful. Uh, not because of the mental health aspect, but, uh, the financial aspect, which still, went hand in hand with the mental health aspect of it. So um, have a plan. Know that if you are not sure, start figuring out what you want to do. Have, Don't just leave thinking, oh, I hate the military. I don't want to be here. I just want to be. Anything is better than being in the military. Don't have that mindset because you will quickly find out that when you leave the military, where it was very stable, though you might not like your your um, coworkers and your supervisors, which that's sorry to break it to you, but that's in every aspect of you know uh, whatever wherever you work, um, you're going to find quickly that that safety net that the military provides for you um, is no longer there, and now you're going to be like, oh, oh like what what I'm going to do now? So have a plan. Have like whether you have to go back to your family's house, your parents' house, go. Well, that's fine, but just have a plan. Hey, you know what? I'm going to be here for X amount of months, uh, maybe a year, a couple years. I'm going to go to school. While I'm going to school, I'm going to uh, make sure that I have all of my uh, my um, uh, my stuff set up as far as benefits go, right? Because it took about six months for the VA to start paying my schooling. 
um, and also help me because there's also an aspect of paying a stipend for the GI bill to help me with rent and food and books and all that stuff. I didn't kick in until six months afterwards. So um, I was maxing out my credit cards just so I can get my education and eat. And um, though my family was there, you know, a lot of it was like, yeah, but I, I'm going to, I'm a grown adult. Like I went to three deployments twice to Iraq and once to Afghanistan. Like I should be, I should have my stuff together right now. Right. Feeling like a burden doesn't help with your mental health. Absolutely not. Right. So, um, even though, you know, it's temporary, it still doesn't help as much. Right. You, Cause you're still in your head about it. So have a plan because that will lessen the burden, uh, that you feel when you're making that transition, talk to other people that have been in your shoes like me, like I'm a prime example. Like I've messed up a lot and I, and I figured things out and I was able to help other people figure out and navigate their lives. Uh, once you go to the, uh, to school, yeah, you don't have to get things. You don't have to have things like totally planned out where, Oh, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to be a lawyer and then I'm going to start doing this. Like, no, I mean, that's where you go to school. You go to school and you try to figure things out though. You don't like this, um, you know, uh, field don't, though you don't like this uh, major, you can always switch and do something different, but do, do the, do the legwork, figure out what you really want to do. Uh, what was always told to me, which really helped me, uh, my, uh, my, uh, mentor in psychology told me, Hey, uh, just because you're taking courses in psychology doesn't necessarily mean that you don't, that you can't work in psychology, like work in some capacity, because then you'll figure out exactly where you want to be in the psychological field. And, uh, because I took that, um, that advice, uh, that's where I, I ended up today as a nurse, because I figured it out. Right. So, um, just because you are getting a stipend, just because you are, um, kind of having not to worry so much about the financial, uh, aspect while you're going to school because you have the GI bill, um, still take a part-time job, take a per diem job, just do something, volunteer and start networking with these people that you ultimately might be working for in the near future, because then they can actually either guide you, put you in touch with, or actually uh, write you a letter of recommendation to put you where you, where you need to be. I mean, if it wasn't for uh, uh, my, my professors, I don't think I would ever be where I was at right now in this point, you know, in my psychiatric field. Um, so uh, have a plan. You don't have to have it all foolproof. Um, ask questions. Don't feel that you're a burden. Things are going to happen. Just adjust and um, ask questions. Don't be that guy that says, I don't need to ask for help because no one can help me. No one understands. No, there's, there's people that understand uh, full well. And, um, you know, um, always be looking for another job. Just because you're in a job, whether it be part-time, full-time, always be looking for another job because there might be another job that actually really sparks your interest and maybe ultimately what you end up fitting into uh, for the long haul. Um, other than that, um, there's always people there to, to help. I mean, uh, you see these texting services, uh, you know, that, uh, that actually for crisis texting, that if you didn't want to talk to someone in person, you could text. Uh, if you're in crisis, call those numbers that are free. There are uh, places that they won't even ask you your name. They don't, they don't want to know where you live. They just want to talk to you and connect. The veterans hotline has uh, one specific for them. Um, that's really great. And uh, you'll see actually they have a, um, they have a documentary out there on YouTube somewhere. Uh, if you listen to that, I mean, they are, they're really great clinicians 
that are uh, able to assist veterans during their crisis. And, and uh, it's just reach out for help. You're, you're, um, you're worth more here living than you would if, uh, if you were gone. Um, you, you would leave a hole in someone's life and it's, it's just not worth it. Um, you know, reach out for help. You're, you're worth more than that. And, um, someone would definitely miss you and, uh, don't put people like that, um, in, in that situation. So reach out for help. Um, there's always someone, uh, wanting to listen. Well, I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com. And through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.